This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have got a really outside-the-box guest for you guys, and it is going to be a good one. We have Mr. Mark Suski from Jensen Hughes here to talk to us about risk engineering. Mark, what's going on, man? Uh, Not much. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you okay. And truthfully, if you know, just to give you some housekeeping, um, if you need to, minimize your screen and use it for your notes. We can see you fine whether you have it maximized on your screen or not. All right, outstanding. Good deal. So before we get into risk engineering, tell us a little bit about Mark and how you got into risk engineering. Well, um, Mark Susky, I, I currently work for a company called Jensen Hughes. I've uh, been with them for a little over 15 years. And we're primarily a fire protection, engineering, life safety type company. And you know, prior to my joining Jensen Hughes, I worked for a company called um, Aon Fire Protection Engineering that had a subsidiary company that was Aon Property Risk Consulting. And so, <clears throat> pardon me. So we worked very closely with them, um, you know, helping out property risk and helping out, you know, the engineering side. So it was a really good mix and a good, you know combination of the engineering side of the house, which I traditionally had been working for, and then working with the, you know, the property risk consulting people, you know, showed both aspects and kind of welded them together, you know, to come across with this, you know, fire protection engineering and, you know, risk engineering type uh, philosophy, you know, type, you know, job. I'll tell you what, man, um, another really good segment of Aon that's out there is their forensic accounting department too. And specific to property losses and and cat losses, I've actually engaged those guys to be on my client's side of the table as forensic accountants to help resolve business income claims. So I'm pumped about listening to you talk about all the stuff that you guys are doing because I've actually have firsthand experience with, you know, number one, why risk engineering is important on the front end of the claim, 
but also number two, how it makes it easier to get through a claim if you've got risk engineering reports and other things from before it ever happened to to fall back on. So before we we get into practical stuff, why don't, in terms of examples and things, talk a little bit about when we say risk engineering, what are we even talking about? So getting into the you know the topic, you know, I just first want to make it clear that this is, you know, just kind of scratches the surface of what risk engineering is all about. And, you know, as Jensen Hughes, all the services that we provide in this this arena, there are certain, you know, t topics that we're going to talk about and kind of scratch the surface in that we could, in reality, spend an hour just on, you know, one of those topics. So this is just going to be very high level. It's going to scratch the surface. Um, so, you know, brief explanation of what, you know, risk engineering entails. You know, first of all, I want to, you know, first and foremost, make it clear you know, safety and protection of human life is always, always on the top of the list. You know, those that, that you know, that's always going to be the first question, the first, you know, box that we're going to check is going to be, you know, life safety, you know, and protection of people. So getting, you know, you know, taking that then one step further, once we know we have that accomplished, you know, the risk engineering is identifying, you know, potential risks and how to mitigate those potential those potential outcomes of a bad event. You know, the insurance industry uses risk engineering to help companies of all sizes, you know, build an infrastructure that's resilient and help them manage loss control. You know, they help mitigate the risk, improve safety, you know, and, you know, in the insurance industry, obviously, to reduce claims. You know, that's the ultimate goal. And, you know, kind of a simple example of what we do with the risk engineering. There's a couple of simple examples. You know, one is designing a car. You know, over the years, automotive manufacturers, you know, they could create a car that, you know, that if once you jumped in and drove down the road, you'd, you know, never have a problem with, but that would basically be driving a battle tank down the road. You know, it's not practical. It's not cost effective. So over the years, we, you know, as, as drivers, we realize there is always an inherent risk in driving. You know, every time we jump into an automobile, we risk, you know, we assume that there's an inherent risk. Sure. Engine. Yeah. You know, stop me if I talk too fast, if you have a question, comment. But, you know, over the years, we have all of the, you know, safety features and th that are being installed in these cars, you know, all-wheel drive, lane assist, blind spot monitoring, you know, all of those things are help helping us mitigate that risk of an accident or a problem while we're driving our car. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th those are, you know, some of the, it's kind of, you know, it in a nutshell, the other, you know, aspect of risk engineering, you know, when we're looking at modern industrial processes, you know, that use dangerous chemicals, or even during the process of making a product, there is a, you know, there's potential for a problem, you know, for example, cornstarch and sugar products, <laughs> everybody uses cornstarch and just about everything and you know sugar products obviously are out there um, however you know during the processing of these foods and these items you know there's always a significant for example with you know the corn starch you know there's a dust hazard and a potential for a deflagration you know those are very real threats while we're making a very innocuous type product like cornstarch you know and over the years we've you know taken engineers have you know picked up the mantle and have created processes and create, you know, blowout panels, extinguishing systems, detection systems, and, you know, suppression systems to help mitigate, you know, those, you know, th those hazards, you know, during our 
process, you know, during the process of manufacturing. So those are just a couple, you know, obviously there's a lot more than, than just those two, but uh, those are just a few that, you know, come to mind when we talk about how we take risk engineering, what it is and how we take it and to apply it to a daily, you know, life. So that's a very that's a very actionable thing that you're doing and it's it's actually to be honest with you a little deeper even at surface level as you were very clear to point out than than what I would have thought it was. So to me in my experience risk engineering is a couple of guys that are XFM global engineers show up to a property they look at everything that could go on with that property, determine a PML for the property, probable maximum loss, look at the construction and all of the other things that go into it, and I get like a 50-page report of information on that property that is way more than I ever would have dreamt <laughs> could be available on it, and yeah. quite honestly, more than probably what I need, but underwriters absolutely love it, but you're actually taking this in risk engineering processes in addition to tangible property. Yeah, we can actually, you know, further down as we talk, there's there's other, you know, real life tools that we use to to mitigate these risks because, you know, we look at, you know, with in the fire protection and life safety industry, obviously, as I said before, you know, life safety is paramount. And in these real world, you know, chemical processes, you know, all of the simple things is, you know, the the, the dust hazard, as we talked about. You know, other chemical processes, manufacturing, you know, oil or crude, you know, gasoline processes and things like that. There are real life hazards that exist during making these products that we need on a daily life. And without, mm -hmm. you know, people stepping in and creating these, you know, analyzing what the risk is and then creating solutions to those risks. You know, we would have, you know, we wouldn't have, we would be back, you know, 200 years ago where we just, you know, 100 years ago when manufacturing started and people didn't really care and we just built stuff and plants exploded <laughs> and yeah, hey, that's what happens every now and again. And, you know, so. Anyways. Right. So we've, we've talked over the past year, um, you know, David and I on the podcast uh, about how COVID has impacted us and, and our agency specifically. What's the impact been in your world? Yeah, COVID is... COVID is, is definitely shaping some things right now. I mean, I, you know, it's somewhat early on in, in, you know, the first year and, you know, these life safety type systems and, you know, codes that need to be changed and things don't change rapidly. Um, but, you know, for example, you know, now with social distancing, everybody's social distancing, you know, places are opening up at 50% capacity, 25% capacity. So we have, you know, we have these items being introduced you know, currently, you know, there's, you know, the water cooler talk. And like I said, this is nothing that's definitive or, or anything that's been written in a, in a code right now, but you know, the water cooler mm -hmm. talk is okay. What's going to happen six months, a year from now, are we going to take this social distancing and say that, you know, at a life safety issue, we have an occupant load, you know, as, as an engineer and architects figure out occupancy loads, are we then going to say a and go backwards and say, okay, if we could have put a hundred people in this space prior, are we now only going to put 50? Are we going to put 75? You know, so right. those are real arguments that are kind of going on, you know, within the industry. Another one is a topic of HVAC systems. You know, do we, you know, the mechanical code requires so many air changes and so much fresh air to be introduced into the system. 
are we now going to make those more stringent? Are we going to look for a higher grade hepatite filtration system that is going to work much better? Are we going to do more air changes, more additional air? Um, so th those are two of the really big changes that are going on right now. And, you know, nobody really knows what the final, you know, what the final answer is going to be, you know, sure. somewhat like happened after 9-11, you know, you know, significant, you know, people were proposing very significant code changes, you know, across the board for how we're building buildings and how people are moving around buildings, you know, but then eventually, you know, the, the industry realized how rare of an event that was and, you know, cooler heads avail, you know, re, you know, came about and they said, okay, we don't need to make significant, significant changes to the code, you know, but they, they did, you know, tweak some codes around the edges and they did tweak some codes um, to accommodate some more stuff. So I, I would assume that something very similar would happen mm -hmm. um, with, with the COVID um, you know, how they're going to change it and what they're going to end up doing. And, you know, one one aspect that has been changed, which actually I took part in, which was, you know, kind of weird, not weird, but different was I was one of the one of my clients. We do site surveys for. So the client calls us up, we go in, we do site surveys, we look at pri primarily my job was looking at the fire protection systems, the sprinkler systems, the fire alarm systems, and those kind of things, and, and looking at it and verifying that, yes, the, the, the system has been installed per the contract documents, per code, and what we do is then we sign off on it and helps them you know, minimize their risk knowing that they have fully functional and fully you know, functioning fire alarm and sprinkler systems. The survey was actually done virtually we completed it virtually where somebody had walked around with a camera a webcam and we were it was a two-way real-time conversation and they walked around with a camera and looked at everything up and down and you're like hey stop here look at that pipe look at that pipe look at this look at that and you walked around the site you know virtually you know to keep as many people away from the site as possible so Interesting. That's one of the things that, yeah, I think that one is going to stick around for a while because when companies look at not only, you know, cost wise, I think it helps bring down costs, but it helps, you know, maintain. And I think it's only going to get better and refined. Well, I mean, the other thing is we're automatically prepared for the next thing, right? I mean, the, the flu has been around forever. And I yes. think the most misc the, the most risk mitigation that's happened around the flu is people putting up a sign in the break room or around the sink in the bathroom saying it's flu season, make sure you wash your hands. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, yeah. you know, Sneezing now they're, yeah, now they're looking at it and they're saying, okay, <clears throat> this is a little bit, I don't necessarily know if more contagious is the right word, but it's certainly yeah, more it prevalent. Is. It's at right. the front of everybody's head. It's probably time to look at that. And you're going to pull, I think that there's a lot of times when you, when you look to use, risk engineering and i'm interested in your thoughts on this but when you use risk engineering thinking you're looking for one thing as a result you actually have the ability to identify other things in your process that you probably didn't even realize existed oh correct i mean and that's why when you're when you're when you're evaluating something from start to finish you know there's a process that we can talk later on and in, into the you know into the presentation into the podcast you know, called a process safety management, where you're actually starting from the, the very first part of that process to the end process. And then you're, you know, you, it's a step-by-step -step where you're walking through that and say, you know, what, where is my problem? You know, what's my linchpin? Where's my most dangerous point of this whole entire process going to be? And what mitigation, you know, can I use to solve those problems? You know, so. Well, I can tell you um, probably one of the 
craziest surprises that I've ever had was having somebody come in um, to do a facilities uh, risk engineering visit on a commercial bakery that I represented. And it was new construction and they were really just getting ready to ramp up and, and take everything live. The building plans had been stamped by an engineer. They were signed off on by the fire marshal. And when we walked into the 20,000 square foot walk-in sub-zero freezer, they had a wet, they had a wet pipe sprinkler system in the ceiling. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that happens. Yeah. Nobody was actually paying attention. <laughs> nobody was really paying that close attention. Yeah, and 20, I'm thinking to myself, square foot walk-in sub-zero. Oh, yeah. well, is, there, is that what you said? This is a it's a hundred million dollar a year manufacturing Still, facility, man. I mean, that's crazy just to even their think pallets, about. Their pallets have pallets in there. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's it, it's nuts. But um, to that end, I mean, who who's your ideal who's your ideal client? Who's the, who are the people that typically reach out to you and hire you to go in and risk engineer? Is it do you do you do things with agents and agencies that have high dollar accounts and they want to differentiate themselves in the marketplace so they're willing to foot the bill for you guys to come in? Is it more on the carrier side? Is it expert witness stuff? Is it all of the above? It's actually kind of a a combination of all of the above. Uh, in reality, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, we work, we have several, you know, property risk consultant companies that we work with. And, you know, a lot of times they'll call us up and they'll have a client or they'll have a, you know, a hazard analysis that needs to be completed or they'll have a process that they want looked at or something along that line. So it could be, it could be the, you know, the property risk consultant that's bringing us to the table that's going to be hired for to the end user. And the end user is going to, you know, eventually going to foot the bill or, you know, sometimes depending upon the insurance, the policy, you know, who actually, you know, foots the bill, you know, that's always worked out in the wash. But, um, you know, it could be directly from the it, it also could be directly from the you know client themselves. You know, sometimes an AHJ will walk in and see something kind of weird and say, hmm, that, that doesn't look familiar to me. You know, you need to show me how that's going to be how that's going to be safe, you know, particularly if you're in a city, you know, and the city doesn't, you know, the fire department doesn't have, you know, the knowledge of, you know, how to st properly store maybe volatile chemicals or, you know, things along that line. So they'll, they'll ask us, okay, you know, come in, evaluate this. We create a report, we give it to the city, uh, you know, those kind of things that, that, uh, those are the type of reasons why we're hired, for, you know, the majority of the time, you know, so. Well, I can tell you from a from somebody who is used in, in being completely transparent, you know, you and I met because of Steve Dines and I had a relationship with Steve at his predecessor organization. So I, I didn't even know about Jensen Hughes. I've used similar services in the past and why why guys like you and in companies like Jensen Hughes are important to people who do what we do, our audience a good bit of them are going after middle market business. And, you know, part of the issue, Mark, is that the property insurance transaction is commoditized. You know, it's very, very difficult. I stray personally away. I have a lot of people that I know that have been very successful writing, you know, large property schedules on in coastal communities and all of that other stuff. But at the end of the day, to the to the naked eye, it boils down to one thing, and that's premium all the time. And it's very, very difficult in a commoditized segment of our business 
to drive value. But what I can tell you is, beyond a shadow of a doubt for, for everybody listening to this, if you've never been through a risk engineering exercise, whether it be property, and I mean, I'm actually ecstatic to know that you're, you guys do other things in terms of looking at manufacturing processes and things like that. I wish I would have known you when I had the latex guy in Indonesia that I represented. That yeah. would have been a fun one to risk engineer for all kinds of reasons. But th you guys really bring something to the table that if I have a large account that's got some property exposure that I may have some questions on, I'm probably going to invest in having a risk engineering audit done is part of my point of sale presentation because I really feel like it stacks the deck in my favor and gives the the buyer a message that they're not used to hearing at that price point. Yeah, and there's yeah, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of significant uh, you know services that we can provide even during that process. Um, you know, obviously, like you said, insurance now is commoditized. You know, you're looking at okay, where can I get my best premiums for the least amount of money? And you know, the end client wants wants the same thing. They want the most coverage for the least amount of money. You know, so as risk engineers, so for example, you know, you call us and said, let's take a look at this property and do a risk engineering or risk analysis of this property. You know, we we come in, we evaluate some of those those items. You know, for a traditional warehouse, for example, I'll just throw out that 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 freezer that that you earlier talked about, that Sub Zero freezer. You know, if that's an existing freezer up and running, that's the things that we would look at. We would, you know, evaluate the, the sprinkler system, evaluate your, you know, fire alarm protection system, you know, evaluate those types of life safety systems so that you can go back saying, okay, we're going to have, you know, protection here and we've got very good protection. So maybe we can, you know, dial back the, the overheads or the, the premiums a little bit, you know, for large industrial processes, we have, you know, we have software where we can do hazardous release modeling. You know, we can actually, you know, hazardous, we can model vapor cloud generation and dispersion. If you're a company that deals a lot with, you know, chemicals and toxic release impact and thermal blast and, you know, all of those type of things that would, would help you in the process of, okay, how do I insure this client? And how do I ensure that we're, 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 we're giving them proper insurance, but you know, and then it also helps the end user like know that they're going to get what they need, but not more than what they need to get. Right. And I think the point, you know, from my perspective is this, you know, if I've got a client who's got a significant total insurable value at one of their locations and it doesn't seem like the underwriter quite gets it, um, I'm not, by the way, I'm going to put a disclaimer on this next comment. I have no knowledge whatsoever of what Jensen Hughes' pricing is. I'm using this strictly because I'm not as smart as Mark, and i got to keep the math easy. So let's just say I pay you guys $10,000 to come in and do an assessment of a single location for me. And as a result of that, I save my client twenty dollars or $25,000. Do you think my client is going to have a problem <laughs> writing a check yeah. to reimburse me for, for that, that cost? Right. I mean, and yeah. that's the way that's the way we want people in our audience to be thinking. You know, we always and, and I'm guilty of this. I make the comment all the time. I did it on the podcast five minutes ago. Properties commoditized. I don't want to play in that game. But the fact of the matter is, if you're creative and if you have the right connections and you understand all of the things that can happen, you know, eh, you can start figuring out ways to drive value in in terms of value added services on the property side of things too. And you know. 
I'm not even going down the road of the things you can see, not only for safety, but even I would imagine that you can pick up and, and I don't want to speak for you. I imagine you pick up the ability to identify things that might not be as efficient as they could be in the process and has the ability to enhance profitability, which is an added bonus, you know, and, and so that what I would question anybody listening to this wondering why I am an advocate for having risk engineering done. Which one of your clients is going to tell you that it's a bad idea to offer them suggestions to improve efficiency and ultimately their profitability yeah. by bringing a subject matter expert in? The answer is as ludicrous as the question is. You know, I mean, yeah. The other the other aspect on that, there's another you know topic we haven't even scratched the surface on either. It's once you you know prov perform these risk engineering services and, and you identify these risks. Now we start talking about, you know, okay, we start talking about BI and we start talking about MFLs. And if we can help decrease your, you know, your business interruption or your, you know, your maximal foreseeable losses by implementing a couple of different programs or maybe putting in some systems that may have a upfront cost, but a long-term benefit, you know, we also help clients say, you know, you have a, and I'm just throwing these numbers out there too. I'll be up front with you, David. So as we're throwing numbers out, if you have a budget for safety for a million dollars a year, we perform some risk analysis. We do a PSM, we do a process safety management survey of your, of your site. And we come back and we, and we look at it and, and say, these are where your exact hazards are. And this is where you would best spend your money if you only have that million dollars. Wouldn't it be a lot smarter to take that million dollars and spend it a lot smarter and, you know, basically target it towards the actual risks instead of just saying, well, here's what we used to do in the past. Here's how we do it here. Here's how we do it there. And just have this wide and broad, you know, scope. Take that money and use it smarter. Use it, you know, make it work for you and have, you know, have those targeted risks identified, have those programs put in place, have those suppression systems or those detection systems, you know, finalized. So you're actually using your money smart, thereby decreasing your, you know, your business interruption potential and maybe your, your maximal foreseeable losses. Well, yeah. And I mean, this goes back to the things they talk about when I would, you know, go, when you go through risk financing, as I was getting into uh, my CRM designation, you know, people, the more sophisticated the buyer, if you're looking at Marsh and Willis and Aon and the companies, you know, the, the, the absolute whales, the national accounts, worldwide accounts that they go after, this is how they approach it. Here's a fun fact. It's also why these companies are wildly successful that they represent. And anything that's done in terms of an investment in these companies, you can be sure the bean counters are running internal rate of return calculations on everything so they know the payback period for whatever investment it is that they make. And that could come in increased efficiency. It could come through reduced premiums. It could come through uh, a decrease of retained losses that were inside of a deductible layer that were all out of pocket and are now gone. And I mean, I can go on for days giving you examples, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's huge and you know, as hard as it is to get your head around some of this, Mark's doing a really good job of giving you practical things that he's seen or that his company does. And I, I'm really hoping that the wheels are spinning a little bit and you're thinking about that one account you lost because you didn't have something. You didn't have something that you could use. Now we talk about it in the workers comp side. 
We can go in, we can do experience modification factor analysis using Mogic. We can go in and we can work on human resources issues and safety issues by putting a learning management system in with Think HR or you know, giving them the HR hotline so that things can be handled immediately. We talk about setting up nurse triage for workers' comp claims to try and keep them at medical-only or first aid basis and cutting down the indemnity portion of the claim and ultimately costing the client more money. What we're doing is we're showing you that that exact same risk management thought process does translate to the most commoditized portion of insurance that we have. And that's, that's the property piece. So that's, that's really good stuff, man. Um, talk a little bit. I mean, when we were going back and forth about how this conversation was going to be structured, you had mentioned case studies. Some maybe a couple of case studies of some things you've yeah. done. You've given some some good examples already. I hope you didn't spend them all because I'm going to no. ask you to maybe share a couple good ones. <laughs> we have but, I mean, to imagine there's some more. Yeah, yeah there, oh, I mean, what would you say the best? Yeah, what would you say the best one is? You know, the the, the biggest win you've Big, ever had yeah, as a result of performing a risk engineering study. Well, you know, personally, like I said, there's a lot of other people in in you know in the company at Jensen Hughes that performs risk risk engineering, uh, and what I'm talking about today is is literally the tip of the iceberg of risk engineering. Um, everything, like I said, from industrial processes, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about dust here in a little minute, you know, dust management and dust hazard analysis is huge. Um, and, you know, going on, but th these are just a few of my favorites um, that I've been involved with over the years. So, you know, one of my favorites was a client we had and they actually were building a brand new ammonia plant they were they, they needed large quantities of ammonia on their on their in their facility so they built the building just to house this large quantities of ammonia and you know, the pumps that they needed to get it out to the specific areas of this process well adjacent to this large ammonia building was also another high hazard building that the company had so they were very curious on what would happen if, you know, God forbid, if I actually had a problem in this ammonia building and I had a deflagration, what would actually happen not only to my building, but also what would happen to this high hazard building that was adjacent to it? And I think it was a maximum, I want to say 47 feet away. You know, what would happen to that building? And, you know, conversely, on the other side, if I had a emergency or uh, something happened in my high hazard building, what would happen to my ammonia building you know what what would happen to these two we you know we looked at it we took a look at it using some of the you know some of the software that's out there you know there's actually you know a lot of different software where you know we can kind of incorporate to you um to determine like we talked about before uh chemical release vapor clouds those you know um flammable gas clouds and you know blevies and jet fires and pool fires so we used a one of the uh programs to determine what a ammonia leak inside this building would look like. So we calculated the amount of ammonia it would take to have a, a deflagration inside inside of the building. Then we equated that energy that would the deflagration would cause to what would it do to my structure. So okay now I know what it's going to do to my structure. What is it going to do to the building adjacent to me? or adjacent to this building and you know when you're evaluating all of these all of these items it you know using the software we looked at the forces that were generated by a um by a deflagration and then we actually worked with and we could see what would have happened if the building was built they had a 
you know, they had it said, we're going to be, you know, we're going to put the building and here's how it's going to be steel, you know, structured I beams, you know, how they structured and said, here's what it's going to look like. Their proposed building looked at it. The forces generated during this, this deflagration and what it would do to the adjacent building. Then we tweaked and we actually worked with, and you know, some of the structural engineers here worked with the client to build that building stronger so that if a deflagration inside of there did happen, it would not be a problem to adjacent buildings. And Mark, then it also what the hell is a deflagration? I have no idea. <laughs> Kyle's been is dying. It an explosion? He doesn't know what the word is. <laughs> yeah, I'm is sorry. It a... it, it's explosion, yeah. Deflagration, explosion. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's fire it's fire engineering geek speak, I guess, is is a, is the Got best it. term for it. It's it's it you know, it's one of those terms that we throw around to show everybody how smart we are. Like, <laughs> there we go. Carry on. Hey, I am going to say it at least five times when I leave today just to get it into yeah. the vernacular. Yeah. So so going back to this explosion that we we're modeling. Um, so we, we took a look at it and, and actually it was it was very forward thinking on, on our clients, you know, our client that ultimately wanted us to do this because they were they they wanted to know a you know, what would happen to the structure and B, what would happen to the adjacent structure. So they were just, you know, looking at this holistically. You know, when you think about it, this risk engineering kind of does look at everything holistically because A, they wanted to know what would happen to my building, my structure, the people. And, you know, B, what would happen to my building, my structure and my manufacturing processes. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, looking at this as more of a holistic point of, am I going to leave if I do have a explosion in this new ammonia building Am I going to cause a catastrophic chain event, which could then take out this adjacent building, which then at the end of this process, I'm just going to have a big, large crater in the ground, and then it's everybody around is going to have a very bad day. Um, so it was actually a very neat project. We, like I said, it was, you know, when we did our studies, when we looked at the ammonia release using some of the computer based, some of the computer programs, you know, calculating the the release energy of a, of a you know, ammonia explosion we work very closely with some of the structural people to help them, you know, create that better, stronger building, you know, put in, you know, blast panels and things like that, that would allow, you know, venting and, you know, the structure to maintain intact. So that was actually a very fun project. And it, it like hmm. I said, it helped everybody all the way around. It helped life safety. It helped their long-term business model. It helped everything. And it was just one piece of that big puzzle. How long does something like that take? Like, what, what's that process look like? I mean, that seems like a little bit bigger of of a um, assessment, but I mean, what's like like how long did that take? Um, the actual computer programming, and it, it's actually not that once you have the building structure and once you have the quantity of ammonia and you, you know, you calculate all of those, you know, how much release, what do I need to, you know, what's the, the mix I need to actually create an explosion, you know, all of, you know, what does a vapor cloud in there look like as it moves around? You know, this stuff is all entered into a, um, a computer program and, you know, it's done in something like that. You know, we're, we usually say four to six weeks. Um, this one took a little longer because we did actually work with the client and we actually worked with them to try, you know, once the, you know, once the initial study was completed where we had the explosive energy that this ammonia explosion would create, would generate, then we could help and we, you know, looked at it and structural engineers kind of picked up the, the mantle and created that building. So, you know, it wouldn't, the building wouldn't come down. We could take, if we did have some sort of, 
you know, if we did have some sort of, um, you know, explosion in the space, we, you know, put in blast panels to help channel, you know, the pressure and the, and the, the venting to a different area away from, you know, the other building and things like that. So that one went for, you know, that one went for like three or four months. Um, but to do an initial impact study, you're, you know, we always tell people four to six weeks, you know, depending upon, you know, the information that we're given, you know, sometimes, you know, we may need more and, you know, it depends upon how quickly clients can get us all the information we need. You know, I'm probably late asking this question, but you've mentioned a couple of times about how this is just the tip of the iceberg and that there's there are people at Jensen Hughes that can do all kinds of stuff. What's your specific specialty? What what I do? Yeah, well, I mean, what would you say you're do you have a, are you specialized or are you general in what you do? I'm, I'm more general in what I do. I, I have a few specialties. My, you know, my specialties is when I first got out of college, I actually worked for a company um, called Fenwall and we did explosion. So when we start talking about explosions in, you know, like dust collectors, uh, explosion protection in explosion systems, that's more really, you know, where if you're looking at this risk analysis where I would fall in on. And that's why I do know a little bit more about the dust hazard analysis and, you know, going back to, you know, going back to that initial comment of how people don't understand or don't realize, you know, the explosive nature of a lot of the different products that they use on a daily basis. Um, when I first got out of college, learning that, you know, going to grain elevators and corn, you know, grain and corn elevators and protecting aerosol fill rooms and, you know, all, you know dust collectors for grain elevators, not for grain elevators, dust collectors for, you know, different type of processes for tissue making, for paper making, you know, wood making and, you know, coal processes. And so that's where I would fall back on if, if you're going to ask me where my level of expertise would be, you know, in this risk engineering area. At one point in time in my book of business, I had a company that uh, packaged aerosols, a millwork company, that latex manufacturer in Indonesia. And there was another one that was, as you were saying that I'm like, holy cow, I needed this guy on every single one of those. But I mean, it, it's crazy. It, so here's here's my question to you. You're obviously very, very specialized. Yeah. Poor Kyle didn't even know what defecation meant. I mean, I'm not gonna tell you one way or the other if <laughs> what, I did what, or not. What was it called? What was it called, Dave? What did defecation? Yeah, that's, a, that's right. <laughs> okay, what, what is it? Deflagration, patient. Deflagration is what you yeah, did it, this morning yeah, in the bathroom. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's one, like I said, that's one of those words you <laughs> like to throw out there to show everybody how smart we are. They, they yeah, taught so, me in college, so I, I need to use it. That's all right. You're good. But, I mean, the people listening to this, I can tell you, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb. You're high level, man. The people listening to this podcast are not high level. There are things that they need to be able to recognize to know that they need you. So if you dial it back to coming right out of college and think about, well, you're not even then really, cause you were, you were special, you know, you were educated in this. Pretend like we're all completely ignorant to all of this. What would be some low hanging fruit that you would tell the people in our audience they could be looking at when they go into their clients and prospects facilities that they should be looking at uh, to keep problematic things from happening or to at least identify and know, I need to get somebody in here to risk engineer this thing. I'll give you an example. If I go into, I have feed manufacturers that I represent. Mm 
Mm-hmm. If I go into a feed mill and there's three inches of dust on top yeah. of the steel beams that are running across the the top of the building, I know we have a problem with cleanliness in the building and dust collection. Okay. If I go into a millwork facility and they have a dust collection system and yet there's dust everywhere as if it's non functioning, th- these are easy things yeah. that I should see. But if, but, but, but the, People who are insurance salespeople that are just used to slinging a policy, you know, they very rarely even say, can I go take a tour of your facility before we leave? You know, I want them to see these are some things that I do have the ability to recognize. I may not know how to fix it, yeah, but I want to recognize it. And, and I know that if I do, I can get a hold of Mark and the people at Jensen Hughes and say... Look, guys, here's what I've got. Here's a couple of pictures of some things that looked a little wonky to me. So what are what are like maybe the top three things that anybody should be able to recognize that, are, that could be messed up in one of these places that they go into that you see more than anything else? Well, a lot of times, you know, as a, as a greater big picture, it's just realizing the, the systems that are there to protect. You know, one of, one of the big things is, you know, for a, for a facility. So if we're looking at just a facility in general – is my sprinkler system active? I will not tell you how many times I've walked into a facility and, and, and how many times we as you know fire protection people go into a facility and find out that part of their sprinkler system was turned off. You know, the, you know, the sprinkler control valves were closed, you know, even under fire investigations, you know, people will find out that, oh yeah, last week we, you know, we shut off this large section of the spring of the sprinkler system to do some work over there. And somebody forgot to turn it on, you know, just big things like, you know, that, that is one of the big ticket items, just ensuring that the systems that are there to protect the, the processes in the building are actually up and functioning. You know, that is, that is key. Is the fire alarm system actually functioning or did they have so many problems with it? They just shut it off. Um, you know, our gate valves that are supposed to be open or closed during your process, you know, are, are they, they are all of the right ones in place. Um, as you're walking through, you know, as you're walking through a process and you're just looking around, I mean, if we're talking from a ground level, those are really the big key items that, that, that are, you know, that are, easy, extremely low hanging. And most, you know, most people understand when I turn my sprinkler system off, bad things can potentially happen. Well, Hey, here's a fun fact, man. Yep. Two of the three things that you just said have endorsements on insurance policy that clearly say alarm must be in working order. Yeah. Sprinkler, you know, you're warranting that your sprinklers are in working order. Mm-hmm. So the one that gets screwed in the process is the insured because they made the decision, not realizing that they had no coverage or reduced yeah. coverage in the event that they they made the decision to do what they did. So that's actually really good information in yeah. one, you know, th- those are some things that, that I've, I've dealt with over the course of my career. Talk for just a second. I mean, we've mentioned it a couple times. You actually had it in here as a, you know, in, in the bullets we shared back and forth about um, dust collection. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't think people understand exactly no. how dangerous dust yeah. is. Yeah. Dust dust is actually a uh, a very big problem. And in fact, OSHA has an NEP, a national emphasis program on dust. They've had it in place for a while. And um, it, it's, it's one of those things that people don't understand, you know, particularly now, even with metal dust, you know, we're having a lot of problems with 3D printer dust. Um, all of these, you know, now that we're going from these small 3D printers to these large 3D printers. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, in the, you know, in the different manufacturing automotive industries, you know, looking at how are we collecting our dust? 
you know, and years ago we were just basically, you know, it being it, the dust was extracted from whatever process you're working with, and it was, you know, conveyed through ductwork into a collector. And that collector, depending upon what kind it is, if it's going through filters, Dropbox, you know, volume, you know, increase type of thing, where then we're correct collecting all of the solid material and taking it away. Well, over the, you know, over the last decade now, you know, over the last couple of decades, actually, you know, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. Um, so if, if clients out there, if people out there do have dust, you're, you know, we, we do this, you know, at Jensen Hughes, we do it on a regular basis. We, when you have these dust, these processes that do generate it, the dust is re, is supposed to be sent in to be tested. And there's a method to test it. And um, the, the test method is not, you know, my bailiwick. That's, you know, somebody a lot smarter than me, the PhD type of people that we have at Jensen Hughes. Um, they, they test the dust for explosive qualities. You know, how much, you know, how explosive, first of all, is it explosive? You know, if I, if I, you know, put heat to it, you know, spark a match, you know, will, will it explode? And once it's determined, yes, it will, then we have to go through a process of figuring out how explosive it can be, what the maximum energy behind it is. And then if that's your process, then we have to look at your process from start to finish. And there's a couple of different ways. There's several different codes out there. There's NFPA, you know, uh, 484, there's 652 that actually talk about dust, dust hazard and how to deal with dust. So there is very, what we call in, in the industry, very prescriptive code, which basically states if you follow these guidelines exactly, you should be fine. Well, the problem with that is those codes have just started to get a lot more, you know, utilized over the last decade. And, you know, people's dust collectors may be out there for, you know, 30 years. You know, that location of that dust collector may have been out there for 30 years. So the dust hazard analysis walks through, once again, from the start of the process to the, where the dust collector is. And if, if you can't do the prescriptive requirements, then that dust hazard analysis Re reviews all of the process and provides mitigation features all the way through. Do I need black back blast dampers um, on my dust collector? Do I, you know, put a uh, venting in my dust collector with uh, spark arresters? Uh, those kind of things, and it, it gives you a plan. And then we also include things like housekeeping. You know, we look at housekeeping and. And, you know, like, like you said earlier, David, do I have, you know, when I walk into a place that generates dust, do I look at a plant to say, oh, I look up at the ceiling and I see an inch of dust up at the ceiling because they don't want to get anybody up there. Or when we walk through a plant, do I see somebody up there, you know, cleaning their dust with an air hose? So now basically I'm creating one huge, massive dust cloud, you know, so there's, um, there's a lot hmm. of that's involved within this dust hazard analysis. Who knew there was so much to dust? Oh, there is. I mean, huh. even metal, people don't realize metal dust is highly explosive, aluminum, metal, you know, depending upon it. And, and dust is, it, it's hard to put a finger on it. You know, you, you may look at two separate, you know, dust and say this one isn't, but this one is because, you know, the dust is a little bit bigger, you know, micron size, or it's got a little more humidity. It's got a little more water content in it where, you know, on a, a lot of different, you know, factors will dictate, you know, if the dust is explosive or if it's not explosive. Hmm. 
Interesting. Yeah. And sound, it, sounds like uh, Hot Rod was on to something when I said <laughs> I was going to fire the cleaning lady, but he said he was going to pay for her out of his own pocket to bring her into dust every couple of weeks. And that was getting back to, <laughs> yeah, getting back to, getting to, yeah, there you go. Getting back to your uh, other question about, you know, some of the things that we've seen and, and, you know, if anybody out there does these kind of surveys for clients that do have dust and I had a client and this kind of goes back to my lessons learned. Um, I had a client that we were doing a dust hazard analysis for. So we, you know, I walked through the plant, um, looked at the dust hazard analysis, you know, looked at it, looked at their process. They even had their, their dust collector outside. They had a back blast. They had the back blast dampers in so that we can isolate the rest so that if I do have a, an explosion within my collector, it's not going to propagate through the entire process. You know, we're trying to isolate it to that one specific spot. And if I lose a collector, that's fine. The collector's outside of the building, the back blast dampers right before, you know, right at the wall before it enters the building. So I'm, I'm in a good spot. So I, I you know, stop that, that, that explosion from propagating throughout my, my processes, which is good. However, when I walked through and I looked at it, they had their dust collector venting because the, the dust collectors will have, you know, explosion vents in, in the event of an explosion, you know, those are meant to, to blow off. So I'm not, you know, throwing shrapnel everywhere. They had that like right next, they put a picnic table right next, a picnic table and break area right next to where this, if there was an explosion, this panel would have just taken out this, this, you know, entire picnic table. So if people were sitting there, so just simple things like that, that people generally don't think about, you know, we did the same thing for another client who had indoor dust collectors that had flame arresters and they had um, uh, venting on them. They were fairly small, but they were, could still present a problem so they had uh put in explosion proof venting with flame arresters so if i did have a pressure release with you know inside of that vessel it would release it would controlled release the pressure and then arrest the flame arrester would make sure i'm not you know having the flamethrower effect and i'm shooting flames everywhere but like anything else it does have a safe distance because you're still venting a pressure at you're still venting a vessel that has pressure in it so you're going to have some pressure come there they did the same thing where they actually put this flame arrest this pressure relief valve and flame arrester right next to a a major walkway where people were walking past so we just had them reroute the we had them reroute the path you know to a safe distance away so those are just you know getting back to that last comment you had said about, you know, what, you know, some of the things we normally see, you know, that was, you know, two of them in the dust realm, you know, and the other one, you know, we, we hit on already was just housekeeping, you know, do we have a, you know, three inch layer of dust everywhere when you start walking into an area that, that has some sort of processes that create that dust. Yeah, I mean, it, it really never ends, man. Part of it has to do with this, open your eyes and look. I mean, try and look through thing, look at things through an objective lens. And, you know, the phenomenon that happens is common. You know, if you come over to my house, Mark, you walk in for dinner and you look left and right, you're going to see every dusty corner that exists in my home because I live there every day and I've over time become blind to it. 
and you're not, you know, yeah, you're not blind to it yeah. because you just came over. And so this is why I'm such a huge proponent, specifically when it comes to things like housekeeping and preventive maintenance, that companies have a formal process in place and that they actually execute on it. It's not the old employee handbook where we're doing it because the attorney said we should have one and we're going to hand one out and make you sign that you got it and that you read it and you understand it. Nod, nod, wink, wink. It needs to be yep. set up. It needs to be um, executed. There needs to be accountability. You need, you need to have people that are responsible for that, that sign off that they've actually done it so that you can hold them accountable for it. And then it needs to be constantly reviewed to make sure that whatever you originally started out doing is actually adequate for what you're doing now. Here, here again, another fun fact. Companies change over time. Manufacturing facilities start manufacturing things they didn't manufacture five years ago. And if you don't take the time to look at this stuff and adjust as you go, you're, you're toast. Yep. So I think yeah. there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, we are coming up on time, but I, listen, I really want um, I want you want you to take a second. This is the whole thing's kind of been a shameless plug, but I'm the one who orchestrated it, so not really. But I want people to to be able to know how to get a hold of you because I really think that this and this is why I was adamant when I talked to Steve and found out that he was no longer at his predecessor. It's why I wanted to get somebody from Jensen Hughes on the podcast because what you guys do is extremely important. If you're selling mom and pop restaurants and you know, retail candle shops and strip malls, you're not going to, you're not going to need these guys. This isn't what, what you do. You're going to put them on a, on a business owner's policy and call it a day. But for those of you that are serious about the middle market and you want to know the types of tools that we have in, at our disposal, as long as we're willing to use them to invest in bringing good accounts onto our book, guys like Mark and companies like Jensen Hughes are paramount in that process. And if nothing else, what you've learned from this last 45, 50 minutes that we've been talking, David ain't a one trick pony when it comes to workers comp. I know about this <laughs> and I can use it at the drop of a hat if I need to. So Mark, this is, you got the floor. Tell them how to find you, Jensen Hughes, whoever you want them to get in touch with if they need to use you guys. Well, the easiest way we're, we're a large global company. We have offices throughout the United States, you know, Europe and you know, Middle East. So we're a large global company. Uh, probably the easiest way is, is just to going to our website. I mean, I could give out phone numbers and things like that, but depending upon where you're at, we have a, a comprehensive website that has, you know, uh, information, you know, on this particular offices in all the different areas of the United States. You know, it has a list of, you know, the experts in different fields, and it also has an inquiry page. So if you're, you know, calling or, you know, inquiring about something in particular, you can just you know, hit the contact us, you know, uh, you know, tab and, you know, type in your question and then it'll be routed to the to the right person, to the appropriate person. So that's just very simple. It's just our website, which is all one word. It's just JensenHughes.com, J-E-N-S-E-N-H-U-G-H-E-S.com. Very simple. And then it can direct you. Like I said, it's very, you know, it, it'll direct you. It's very intuitive and very, you know, user-friendly. Yeah. Sweet. Good deal. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I could talk yeah. about yep. this stuff for a long time. And you could talk for even longer, I'm sure. But, you know, this is this is the stuff that our industry needs, man. The, the, the Main Street in the independent agency channel needs to understand, you know, why – 
companies that are global companies in terms of brokerages and otherwise win and why they what you know what they do to get yeah. larger accounts and you know i hear the story all the time oh well you know they're old college buddies or they put them on the private jet and took them to a, a ball game or whatever else that's bullcrap what gets business done is providing a solution to a problem that your client didn't know they have before they talk to you and this is a great example of that with that i'm going to end it i really appreciate you coming on today mark look forward to uh, getting to uh continue dialogue with you in the future i know you guys are maybe not you personally but i know you guys will be doing business for florida risk partners and i trust that other people have learned some things from this podcast that they can take out and make a positive impact not just on their financial situation but on the landscape of their clients and their book of business have a great day mark thanks again my friend and I'd like to say thank you for the opportunity, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks, Absolutely. Mark. See you. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com.